Hi, everybody, and welcome to Will This Be On The Test. I'm Maddie. I'm Austin. And we are here today to talk to you about some stuff that you should have learned in school, but you didn't learn, or you didn't learn fully, or you didn't learn correctly. And also, sometimes we talk about just the stuff that's been bumming us out this week. Yes, we are in week two of the protests. Yep. And And week 700 of the quarantine. Yeah, we were talking earlier about how this week, this year has been an absolute nightmare, but it's also gone very, very quickly because time has no meaning. No meaning at all. Well, it's been something else. And then to put the cherry on the ice cream sundae of shit, JK Rowling doubled down on her anti-trans stuff. Uh, it's like we should have we should expect this. She does this about once a year. Yeah, but this time it seemed like an official declaration for the first time. Yeah. That was the difference. And also she chose to do it during Pride Month when the world is literally on fire already. Mm-hmm. And it almost was like, I'm not getting enough attention. I wrote this whole book called Ichabog and all these other things are getting more attention. How do I get the attention on me? I'm already one of the richest people, so that means no one's really persecuting me anymore. I need to feel persecuted. Yeah, and what really bugs me is her saying that trans, admitting that trans is a thing nullifies the experience of women. What? Yeah, I'm like, okay, first of all, there are more than two genders, like, at a scientific level, and I don't just need people who have, like, both sets of genitalia. You can grow up believing that you're female And then your period never comes, or you can't conceive, or everything seems, you know, a-okay, and then one day you get a genetic test and find out that your chromosomes are not female. It's like, either one of us could not be the sex that we believe that we are. And it none of that, like, be a person being trans or intersex or whatever does not nullify my experience as a woman. No, that makes zero sense. Like, negative sense almost. Just, I am none of these things, so I feel very, it's very difficult for me to speak on any of it. But none of what she said made sense. No. So that was a bummer, but I did take a day off this week. You did. And I did nothing, and Austin, well, I I cleaned, but I didn't clean too much. And Austin was very proud of me. Very proud. It's a billion degrees out, so I have not been going out and walking like I used to, but I'm, I'm trying. And anything good happen for you? Um, some more stuff has managed to sprout up in the garden, and I don't think the baby bunnies are going to get to it. So that's been nice. In Kansas, they don't sell anything harder than beer at the grocery store. Like, I can't get wine or hard cider there, and I'm allergic to barley, so I can't get anything that's alcoholic at the grocery store, except for White Claw. So what lovely flavor do you have this time? I have natural lime. Oh, you thought that one was gross. I finished it. It was fine. The first sip was a little overwhelming. I'm a little nervous because it's dented on the side, so let's see. Okay, cool. I was afraid it was going to spray all over me. Why are you pointing at me when you did that and, like... Leaning away. The real question is, why did I have it right next to the microphone? I'm a genius. I think you wanted to get that nice popping sound of the can opening. Okay. I think it. I think it's the reason I, did, I was originally like, this isn't good, is because it reminded me of a gin and tonic, but it wasn't quite a gin and tonic, so my brain got confused. It's not bad. Okay. I'm going to try it. Sure. Austin's allergic to alcohol, but like a little sip won't kill him. I've got like, I just have a really strong, strong flush reaction, so I just don't drink. Your eyes swell shut. Yeah. That is not a flush reaction. It's a flush reaction. Sure. Cool. Yeah. 
So next time my eyes swell shut, you're going to just say that's a flesh reaction to the mold. Get over it. Mm-hmm. Yes. Nice. Exactly you're what's going to happen. Good marriage. The, the best. Healthy marriage. Well, it is, though, like we mentioned, in a horrible sense, but in a positive sense, too, and more so in a positive sense. I just said nothing. It's Pride Month. And like we've done for other months, and we don't do we don't do this for every month, every holiday. We're you know hoping to be around for a while, so we'll probably do some and not others in different years. It's Pride Month, and we were gonna talk about this anyway, but especially with J.K. Rowling, we definitely felt the need to make sure that we had a Pride Month episode this month. Oh yes. Very much. And especially with the violence that occurs against trans people on a regular basis, especially trans people of color. But it's not just trans people. The Pride Month is for everybody who is LGBTQ+. And we got you. We're on, yep. we, we are on your side. We are, we are doing what we can as a podcast. Which is, um, considering we've got like five listeners, not a whole hell of a lot. But you know what? At the very least, we are bettering ourselves by learning something we didn't know much about. So, we can pat ourselves on the back. I'm sorry, are you making Pride Month about us? I make everything about (laughs) us. (laughs) Like, originally I was going to do Bigfoot, which is all about me. I mean, originally I was going to do Nostradamus. We are very mature people. They might come up later, but... Yeah, yeah, so we we came in today and decided to talk about a couple of important people in LGBTQ history. Who goes first this week? I think I went first last week, so it's your turn. I literally don't remember, so I'm just going to go. Yep. What was your topic last week, just out of curiosity? Last week, I talked about the First Amendment and how it relates to journalism. Oh, okay. I do not remember what I talked about. Ponzi schemes. Ponzi schemes. So you went first, I went second. I'm yep. going first this week. You got to go first. Well... My sources are actually pretty short this time. It's the Sewanee Review, Wikipedia, Biography.com, Britannica.com, The New Yorker, and The Independent. Okay. So, school literature. We went to the same high school. Yes, we did. And our authors' works that we read were notoriously male, white, and hetero. Insanely so. Yes. Or so we think, at least on the hetero one. First of all, throughout history, most people have not been out of the closet. If they were LGBTQ, they kept it to themselves just to survive. So I wanted to make sure I picked somebody this week who I would not be in any way outing. There are some excellent authors out there, playwrights who are believed to be LGBTQ, but never actually said so themselves. So I didn't go with one of them. Our teachers frequently ensured that we knew a little bit about the authors or at least the time period they were writing in so that we would have context for their work. But you probably noticed that on some of them, they were pretty quiet about the author's personal life. Yeah. Now, kids, if you are listening to your teacher talk and they deflect answers about the author's personal life, and I don't mean saying I don't know. They genuinely might not know. But deflecting. Do some research because there might be something interesting there. Like I remember um, when we were doing To Kill a Mockingbird, like any questions about Gil were quickly shut down. <laughs> yeah. I read To Kill a Mockingbird in Catholic school. I also read The Birds in Catholic school, which the author of which I believe is also gay. I can't remember if she was out or not, though, when I was doing my initial research. But of course, that was never brought up. We never talked about the author with that one. Oh, no. So a few years ago, I did a playwright project with my students. They each researched an important American playwright and did a presentation at the end. 
One of the things they researched was who or if this person was married. And they found in it that I'd say at least a third, if not a half of the playwrights they researched were not straight. This was not me doing this intentionally. This was me picking from a list of important American playwrights whose work I knew was age appropriate. Now, I'm not talking super like it wasn't all Barney is a dinosaur age appropriate, but it was something that if an eighth grader read it, I would probably not get a phone call. Probably not. Probably. Well, we discovered that at least a third of them were gay or... Um, wow. So we, it actually led to a really great discussion about the purpose that theater serves in the community and the community at large in the LGBTQ community specifically, not to say that there aren't problems because there absolutely are. We, if you read about any of it, you'll find it, but it led to this really great discussion. So I'm going to talk about one of the authors that came up on that list. And I'm pretty sure we both read at least one of his plays, uh, which was Tennessee Williams. I, re- I read A Streetcar Named Desire, and it's like most of what I remember it from it is actually the um, streetcar musical episode of The Simpsons. <laughs> I read Glass Menagerie. Believe it or not, this dude was a prolific writer, like to the point where Wikipedia said, and other works on their list of works at the bottom. Wow. He was an author, a playwright, and a poet. And when you think of him, you probably think of Glass Menagerie, Streetcar, and Cat in a Hot Tin Roof. Those are the um, school-friendly ones. Now, I don't know if you're... I never actually read Streetcar. It is definitely not school-friendly. That was... I think that was actually a college one in a lit class. Mm. See, I read Glass Menagerie in high school and again in college, and I saw it performed at a high school, which is a whole bizarre thing to begin with. These are his nice plays. Like, these are the kid-friendly plays, and one of them has a very aggressive rape scene in it. Streetcar Named Desire. Is that Streetcar? I thought it was Cat and Hot Tin Roof. It might be both because there's... Most of his plays have something like that. They, they have this underlying theme of sexual violence. And we'll talk a little bit about why. And why has nothing to do with him being gay. Being gay and sexual violence are not the same thing no matter what Fox News wants you to believe. I like the way that Britannica described him. American dramatist whose plays reveal a world of human frustration in which sex and violence underlie an atmosphere of romantic gentility. Ooh. If oh. that does describe America, I don't know what does. Very, it's like definitely, so it's kind of the Southern Gothic type. Yeah, it's a very much like repressed Americans and how we are afraid to talk about sex. So it comes out in like these bursts of anger. And that all goes back to his mother. Now, when we read about the these, we read these in school, at no point did anybody mention that Tennessee Williams was gay. Despite the fact that one of his characters in Glass Menagerie is believed to be gay. That was the gentleman caller. And there are some undertones and presumably gay characters in his other plays. He does tend to write heteronormative relationships. But again, he was writing plays predominantly in the 40s and 50s. That was just wise. Now, I'm not mad at my teacher for not sharing us, sharing this with us. The fact is, Kansas literally mandated when we were in high school that creationism be taught in science classes. Somehow we never managed to get to it. It was always the end of the curriculum and we just ran out of time. I think uh, we had a sent- we had our creationism sentence that was also not on the test. And they recently tried to make it not only illegal, but also, also jail worthy for teachers to discuss anything that anyone could consider offensive. They had no definition for what that meant. 
That literally meant that if somebody didn't like To Kill a Mockingbird, the teacher could go to jail. Wow. Yeah. So I understand why the teachers weren't like, hey, and by the way, this guy was gay. Especially in the environment that we were in then. It's a little better now. And believe me, I didn't keep it quiet in class. I was like, hey, we're reading a play by this person. This is their little bit about their life story. And all like, and that would include who they were married to or what children they had or if they were in a same-sex relationship. But when we ignore the fact that famous historical figures were not necessarily cisgendered heterosexual men, we erase them from history. That's what erasure is, J.K. Rowling. When it's not, well, someone else struggles that erases my struggles. Go fuck yourself. Anyway, Tennessee Williams, born Thomas Lanier Williams III in Columbus, Mississippi. He describes his first few years of his life as happy, but then his father stopped working as a traveling salesman. He did not write Death of a Salesman. No, that was, he married Marilyn Monroe. Oh, I had his name and then he said Marilyn Monroe. I'm like, yeah, that's right. And then I blanked on his name. Uh, Not Joe DiMaggio. No, it starts with A. Arthur Miller. Thank you. We, professionals, we have adult brains. (laughs) We uh, registered to get our mail-in ballots recently. No, we oh, didn't. We, oh, we forgot <laughs> to. We need to mail in to get our mail-in ballots. We don't, we've got the registration for said ballots. We do not have them turned in. Okay, t- today, after we're done recording, we will fill them out. And we'll we take will, a walk to the mailbox. We will walk to the mailbox because we don't trust our neighbors to not steal them off of our mailbox. Because we've got one of those ones you got to pin on. Yeah. And... We will turn those in so that we will be registered to vote by mail and not commit voter fraud like Donald Trump or Derek Chav- Chauvin. Chav- Chavin? Chauvin? Well, and both of them committed it in Florida. Yeah. It's like, what is with all these Republicans committing vi- voter fraud by mail in Florida? And yet when a black person does it, they're made an example of, like that lady who did it by accident, not knowing that she couldn't vote while she was on probation. Yeah. Which really should just be a, hey, you can't vote while you're on probation. We're nullifying your vote. Okay, cool. Mm-hmm. That's all it should have been. The president knows. Someone chose to not tell him. Someone, Melania someone chose. Someone chose. Melania said, yes, Donald, you are allowed to do this. I remember it from my citizenship test. Oh. <laughs> we are not making fun of immigrants. I'm making fun We're of Melania. We're making fun of Melania. <laughs> she absolutely would try and do... Th- I think she's at she the point... She hates him. Oh my god. The, it's like, the video of like saying, it's like, hey, smile. And she did the... Because eh. you can see my face. But she gave like a half-hearted little like... Grimace. I, it is a grimace. grimace. Then went back to just resting bitch face. Anyway, we got to there from Arthur Miller. Um... <laughs> His father stopped working as a traveling salesman and moved the family to St. Louis. Now that his father was back in the picture, things went south. Their fi- their marriage was not a happy one, which ultimately led to, to their divorce years and years and years later. He was the middle child, older sister, younger brother from a family with an alcoholic, abusive, and absent father who, you know, got around. And a mother who focused a lot of her attention on Thomas because he was sickly and nearly died from diphtheria. The mother, Amanda, in Glass Menagerie, is 100% her, his mother, except his. in that case, she's very much like, all oh, these men found me beautiful and wanted me and blah, 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 where his mother, on the other hand, was a highly repressed uber-Christian who abhorred the idea of sex, leaving both of her sons to not have a healthy understanding of or relationship with sex or their own bodies. This... I feel like this might have influenced his work. It did. It did. It's like, I read the most bizarre article and 
I like there's a whole like there's several biographies about him, but like his brother married at 37 and hadn't had sex until then. And even Tennessee Williams says he didn't masturbate until he was in his mid 20s because he was afraid of like his whole his whole body and his feelings of sexuality and all that. And his sister, his poor sister, ended up in an institution. And I'll get into that in a little bit. But his mother might have had something to do with that. The mother, though, is Amanda Wingfield in Glass Menagerie. And the father, it's belie- his father is believed to be the inspiration for Big Daddy in Cat in a Hot Tin Roof. I have not read Cat in a Hot Tin Roof, so. I haven't either. I don't know for sure what happens in that. But I'll talk again about another inspiration in a second. Uh, when he's a teenager, he won third in a contest with an essay based on the prompt, Can a Wife Be a Good Sport? This was in the 1920s. This was in the this 1920s. Was the 19... He was 16 at the time, so it was 1940s? 30s? Wow. 1930s. 1930s. Oh. Yeah. And he actually took it in a really interesting direction, pretending to be a divorced husband whose wife had cheated on him, Pondering how or if women can become who they were before they got married after being married. How much does marriage change you? Uh, he won third. He got five whole dollars out of that. That's that's walking around money. Yeah. Uh, his mom reported that he began, quote, coming into the house through the back door instead of the front as he usually did. I'm sure he feared that the magazine would send someone to the house to check up and discover the supposedly sophisticated divorced prize winner was 16 and had never dated a woman. <laughs> And he did. He continued to write for this and other trashy magazines under pseudonyms claiming to be an adult divorced man. And they believed him. He didn't write like a 16-year-old. His mom's dad encouraged him to keep doing this. He was like, you're clearly a good writer. He's like, but you need to aim higher than these trashy magazines. One source said that his grandfather was likely also gay. But again, I, A, don't believe in outing people. And B, don't know how they came up with that. Maybe he outed himself at some point. It just didn't show up in my research. But either way, he had this grandfather who supported him, even though his mother was crazy and his dad was abusive. So there was someone at least. After high school, he moved to Columbia, Missouri to attend the University of Missouri, also known as Mizzou. Oh, good old Mizzou. He joined the fraternity Alpha Tau Omega, but he was not well liked there. He also at some point in his life would say, I don't really like people. I can pretend to like them, but I don't actually care when they're talking. He actually said something along those lines. I've heard you say exactly that. (laughs) To me, even. I care when some people are talking. Oh, am I one of those people? Sometimes. I'll take it. (laughs) He wasn't particularly interested in his classes, so he continued to write stories for magazines to earn extra income. After he failed a military course, his father made him drop out and work at the International Shoe Company factory with him. There's also evidence that his father didn't like that his girlfriend, Thomas's girlfriend, was attending the college with him. Yes, he was dating women at the time. And... Didn't want him to go to school with her. I'm not entirely sure why. Maybe maybe he thought she was a distraction. Side note, though. To this day, we like to tell college students, your parents can't make you do anything. You're an adult now. Well, yes, legally. But in many cases, these college kids have never had any other adult advisor in their lives. 
And I've had so many former students who ended up in a college major that they didn't want to be in because their parents would disown them if they didn't become a doctor or a lawyer or wouldn't pay to college for that. And I'm like, do you really want a doctor or a lawyer who doesn't want to be a doctor or a lawyer as your doctor or a lawyer? It's like, I want to be a dancer, but mom made me study medicine. Anyway, I couldn't find your appendix. I hope you're happy. Yeah, it's like, don't hold your kids' futures hostage over what you want them to be. Pay for college, don't pay for college, don't make it determined on what your desires are. Anyway, he hated work in the factory, so that drove him to work harder as a writer. His mom remembered, quote, Tom would go to his rooms with black coffee and cigarettes, and I could hear the typewriter clicking away at night in the silent house. Some mornings when I walked in to wake him for work, I would find him sprawled, fully dressed across the bed, too tired to remove his clothes. If you've read Glass Menagerie, I need you to imagine Amanda Wingfield right now. (laughs) Then he hit 24 and had a nervous breakdown, leaving his job. You've ever had a nervous breakdown? It's not fun. He would later say that one of his co-workers would be the inspiration for the character Stanley Kowalski in A Streetcar Named Desire. Oh, he was uh, he was awful. I want you to think about what Stanley did, which raped a woman named Blanche, mm-hmm. sending her into a nervous breakdown. Huh. One has to wonder how much of that was based on some kind of reality for Tom ten- or Tennessee, whatever you want to call yeah. him at this point. I'm not, maybe he, maybe that happened to him with the Stanley Kowalski guy. Maybe this is something that he knew that the Stanley Kowalski guy did to someone else. Maybe it's something to do with his interpretation of sex from his mother. Who knows? But kids, if you are listening to this, and maybe Austin can attest to this, the movie changes the ending. Do not watch the movie to take the test over the play. You actually need to at least read the spark notes so you know what happens. Or at the very least, watch the Simpsons episode. It's got a wonderful musical number. Because as I understand it, at the end of the play, his wife stays with him and is like, it's okay, I'm your wife and that's what we do. Yeah. Uh, but in the movie, she leaves him because it's what he did was horrible. I don't I don't think I've seen the movie. Now, does he rape Blanche or does he rape Stella? He rapes Blanche. Okay. Or attempts to rape. I, it's been like, it's been over 10 years since I've read this. Everything I read said the word rapes, not attempt. Okay. Like, I have not read this one. The only, as far as I know from it, it's just the reference to Stella and, Mar- and Marlon Brando's audition for it. He later enrolled at Washington University in St. Louis, then the University of Iowa. After graduation, he continued his education at the Dramatic Workshop in the New York and the New School in New York City, which is still there. He had begun writing plays in undergraduate school, but a collaborative work called Cairo Shanghai Bombay exclamation point was what really got him in. He said, the laughter enchanted me. Then and there, the theater and I found each other for better or and for worse. And I know it's the only thing that saved my life. Wow. I can't tell you how many theater people have said similar things. The only reason I'm still here is because I have this community. This community that's willing to have me exactly as I am. Which is why it really pisses me off when people tell their kids they have to be a doctor because theater's not real and theater's not important. Really? Because people, there are people who were like, suicide or be in the play. So. Yeah. Arts are important. Don't let Chris Kobach tell you otherwise or other assholes. Mm Mm-hmm. At some point during all this, I couldn't really get the timeline down. He ended up moving to New Orleans, which is where he changed his name to Tennessee because his father was from Tennessee. So talk about a complicated relationship, am I right? 
Now, in the late 1930s, he began considering the idea that he might not be straight. Up until that point, he had had several failed attempts at dating women and started to realize maybe it's failing because I don't actually like women. He joined a gay social club in New York City where he met his first boyfriend, a guy named Kip Kiernan, who left him to marry a woman, which is something that was very common. It didn't mean Kip wasn't gay. It meant that Kip was meeting the social expectations of the time. And then he died. Kip died a few years later at the age of 26, which broke Tennessee pretty badly. A few years later, he met a man named Pancho Rodriguez y Gonzalez in Taos, New Mexico. As history often repeats itself from parents to relationship, Pancho was prone to fits of jealous rages and drinking. So think about his dad and then his mother being overly protective. It's a whole thing. They briefly lived together, but Williams broke up with him after two years and they remained friends until the 1970s. However, he didn't immediately find success. We love to talk about these people like it was just overnight. Suddenly, like one day they wrote this play and all of a sudden they're really good. Yeah, that always bugged me because we're always told like, you know, practice and keep trying. But at the same time, every time we learn about someone famous, it's like you only learn about their successes. You like, Mm -hmm. it's like they were suddenly famous. They did this. Yeah, so it wasn't like he began his career at the beginning of the Great Depression. Oh, so he worked. I, I understand that. Pain. He worked for the WPA, which I talked about with the Federal Theater Project uh, way back in the beginning. Then Glass Menagerie, his first successful play, didn't come out until 1944. So he's like an adult adult at this point. Streetcar didn't come out until 1947. By 1959, he had earned several awards, but that's all stuff you learn about in school. So I'm not going to talk about it too much. Now he's an adult. So you're starting to think maybe, maybe his life will be a little bit easier. No, I told you I'd get back to his sister. Tennessee's sister, Rose, with whom he'd always been close, was diagnosed with schizophrenia. Maybe she had schizophrenia, maybe she didn't. And the reason I say that is she ended up in an institution after years of saying that her father had molested her. Now, I want you to imagine having this uber-Christian mother who thought that sex was sinful no matter what and telling her, dad has been touching me. Now, is she going to believe you or is she going to lock you up because this can't possibly be true? I'm not saying she wasn't schizophrenic. She very well could have been. She also could have had any number of mental health issues. Then she was lobotomized. Oh. So around the time Glass Menagerie came out, she had a lobotomy. I can't remember if I said her name. Her name was Rose. The lobotomy didn't help, and she ended up institutionalized for the rest of or almost the rest of her life. I couldn't quite tell. With Tennessee funding most of her care and ultimately moving him closer to her once he was financially able to. He set it up so that a percentage of the royalties from all of his plays would go to her. So she had a constant income, even though she was completely institutionalized. And that paid for all of her care. It's believed that she was the inspiration for Laura in The Glass Menagerie, who preferred to live in a fantasy world with her glass animals over existing in what would be considered a suitable reality. And which is why she is so not interested in her gentleman caller, among other things in the play. And her mother the whole time is very much, I just don't understand why you are the way that you are. Why can't you just be normal? Um, I... What were you saying? Normal is overrated. Yes. I couldn't find much about his sister and what her world was like. Like, I I don't know what form her schizophrenia took, but it makes sense to me that Laura and she would be in the same boat. And I'd bet the stage manager character is supposed to be Williams himself watching his mother, the character Amanda, take on the role towards her daughter that he took on, she took on towards him. But maybe there's a little bit of Tennessee in Laura as well, feeling like he's not quite right. Like Laura's body is what's not quite right. And he didn't feel like he was in, like his body was wrong. Like he was told, raised to believe your body is bad. So I think it's, this is, can you tell I used to be a teacher at this point? Yes. (laughs) 
1948, Williams met an actor named Frank Merlo, and like that was it. He was that was it for him. Uh, for the next 14 years, they were together. Merlo acted as his secretary, taking on not just their personal lives, but also providing balance for him when his depression would take over. Uh, Williams was afraid that he was going to end up like his sister Rose, institutionalized or even worse. I mean, and mental illness is a team sport. You need to have somebody on your side who can help provide that balance and perspective. And then after the drug abuse and infidelity on both sides got too bad, they broke up, only to be reunited a few months later when Merlot, like Kip, was diagnosed with cancer. And Williams cared for him until he died in 1963. Oh, man. So Merlot's death actually did ironically send Williams down the path of madness that he was so afraid of. His depression left him nearly catatonic, and he spent a lot of his time in mental health facilities. Did you know that the name Dr. Feelgood was a real person? What? Yeah, he was also called Miracle Max. What? Uh Uh-huh. His name was Max Jacobson, and in addition to treating JFK, Marilyn Monroe, and (gasps) Elizabeth Taylor... Oh, yeah. Okay, I know who you're talking about now. He treated Tennessee Williams. Jacobson used what he called his, quote, miracle tissue regenerator, which had amphetamines, animal hormones, bone marrow, enzymes, human placenta, steroids, and vitamins. And he also used meth on people. Good old meth. Now, I'll tell you, amphetamines, like, taken appropriately, and I don't mean meth, I mean, like, Adderall. Fucking awesome. Like, if you have a doctor monitoring you, they are life-changing, and Tennessee Williams was taking them to help with his depression. They're not for depression, but if you have, like I do, ADHD, it can lead to depression. So when I'm on my meds, I am way less depressed because I feel like my brain is, like, listening to me. President Kennedy ignored the FDA's reports and said, I don't care if it's horse piss, it works. (laughs) That's not really relevant, except I thought this was funny, honestly. (laughs) Um, I mean, really, that's what our podcast is about. It's, this isn't relevant. I just thought it was funny. We should do some, like, spinoff episodes where it's just us doing that. This isn't relevant. I just thought this was funny. Yeah. Uh, Williams saw him to decrease his depression, and he combined them. Williams did, not Dr. Feelgood. Williams combined them with Secanol also known as quinobarbitone. That's a tranquilizer. One of the most common drugs in the mixture for human and animal euthanasia. Yeah. Especially in doctor-assisted suicides. He used that as as a sleeping pill. This is not what kills him. In the late 1940s and 1950s, he had his heyday. Believe it or not, 1940s, 1950s was when this guy with the stuff he wrote was on top. His out there plays were either loved or hated with moralists crying out that he was trying to ruin the world. Good. He wrote what to this day is considered one of like the most bizarrely sexual plays out there called Baby Doll. It's actually what the Baby Doll Nightgown is named after. I've never read it. It's also on the like almost every list of top 100 movies you have to see. And we were talking about seeing a movie. Basically, it's like this girl is married to this guy and she's 17 when they got married. And the guy agreed with her father that he wouldn't have sex with her until she was 20. And the whole like a big part of the play, she sleeps in a crib and sucks her thumb. And like, it's apparently bizarre. The church hated it. Like anybody like moralists really hated this. And that was like a little more on par for the stuff that Tennessee Williams wrote. So you can kind of see what I'm talking about with the stuff that we read in school being tame. Yeah. Yeah. Good God. Now I have to to look this up. You've given me like research. Mm -hmm. Thanks. Thanks a lot. Um, Upon Merlot's death, though, that's when everything began to fall apart. His work wasn't as embraced as much. Like you and I, we joke, we see jokes about how writers 
are at their best when they're on drugs. The opposite was true for Williams. His work started to really suffer. The drug use also made him less popular as a person, though, like I mentioned, he wasn't especially popular to begin with. He went and saw this show called Hedda Gobbler in 1970. It's an Ibsen play. I've read it. It's supposed to be one of those really, really important works, and it makes me want to gouge my goddamned eyes out. Oh, Ibsen. Like, think Portrait of the Artist's Young Man is supposed to be a really good work, and you just want to kill yourself the whole time. Okay, I'm re- honestly, like, I feel like the only reason people like Portrait of the Artist of the Young Man is because it's dense and incomprehensible. There's not that much substance to it. That's how I felt about Hedda Gobbler. Well, he went and saw it in 1970, starring this young actress named Maggie Smith. <gasps> and as soon as she walked on stage, he burst out laughing and didn't stop laughing the entire time, coming to a crescendo of laughter when she goes off stage and uh, you hear the gunshot. What? She came up to him afterwards and was like, why were you laughing? And he goes, oh, that poor woman. She's just so bored. (laughs) So not she was boring. Like, I don't know if he meant the character was bored or that Maggie Smith was bored carrying, carrying her. But his friend Peter Hull said that he thought that Tennessee Williams actually saw the show as a dark comedy more than a gritty drama, which frankly, with a lot of these dark dramatic shows that we're forced to read in school... I think we need to start looking at them and seeing, is this a drama or is this a dark comedy? Romeo and Juliet. Is a dark comedy? It's, I fully believe it's a dark comedy. That checks out, actually. And Okay, when we are, we like to watch bad movies and we will laugh uproariously, especially at dramatic moments. And that's poured over to us laughing at dramatic moments in very serious movies. Like, didn't we like crack up laughing watching one of those awful Oscar movies that was so dramatic? I know that we lost it during the preview for that Ben Affleck basketball movie. He had a free ride to Kansas. Free ride to Kansas. And he gave it up. And we were like, oh, look, it's White Savior, the movie, part 27. Okay. I remember, I think it was that awful Casey Affleck movie. Oh. And there was like this dramatic scene. And I was having to fight off laughter the entire time. And I dared to look over at you. And you were doing the exact same thing, and I almost lost it because you had almost lost it. Casey Affleck can go fuck himself. Yeah, he he can. And maybe leave women alone while he does it. It's like, you, you know, he can, like, Casey Affleck, like, if you have those, like, little sticky things in your shower to keep you from slipping, I would not be opposed if you got rid of those. It's like, I could do a whole episode, though, on why I think Romeo and Juliet is a comedy and not a tragedy. Ooh. But. That's more of a TED Talk. That's more of a TED Talk. So I just recommend reading it. And reading it again, thinking, this is a comedy. And just see what happens. See how it changes for you. And frankly, honest to God, see how it becomes significantly more meaningful. Because with it being called a tragedy, I think most of the meaning is lost. And plus, if you score it as, if you, if you score it as a, dramatic, as a uh, dark comedy, there's going to be some very inappropriate songs you can play over it. I mean, you can do that whenever you want. Yeah. Uh, so this whole time, he begins entering and exiting mental institutions. He joined Catholicism at the insistence of his mother, but his career was largely over and conversion didn't save his career nor him from his drug dependencies. Throughout the 1970s, he began to fear he was losing his attractiveness and that no young men would be interested in him. He did ultimately end up in a relationship with Robert Carroll, a Robert Carroll was a Vietnam veteran and wannabe writer 40 years his junior. Oh, damn. Mm-hmm. 
I looked him up and I'm 99% certain he is not the Robert Todd Carroll who wrote things like The Skeptic's Dictionary. I am fairly certain he's a different author because I found a different book by a different Robert Carroll called Shenu, My Intimate Life with Tennessee Williams. Yeah, that's probably the right Thomas Kipps. Still alive, as far as I could tell, okay. published in 2016. It is 887 pages long. To put that in perspective, The Stand Unabridged by Stephen King is 823. No, I'll, I'll pass on that one. They broke up in 1979. So this wasn't even like the end of life relationship that he's talking about. Uh, when they broke up, Williams referred to him in the news as a twerp. <laughs> But the two stayed... I think we're having a little cat fight. Zumbi and Draco. Uh, the two stayed close enough for Carol to be one of the two people who were left in his will. Now keep in mind, he also had a brother. Oh. Do you think the brother of Rose was left in the will? I would go with Rose. His mother died in 1980 at the age of 95. Apparently in the last five or so years of his life, Tennessee had been like, you know what? Fuck this lady. And once she was in a home, he peaced out almost entirely. <laughs> now, that sounds really harsh until you consider the way she raised all of her kids to be afraid of their own bodies and not listening when they said that their dad was hurting them. And I mean, granted, a lot of that was normal for the time, although even to her husband and her like family, the way she behaved towards sex was not normal. Um, so apparently he was largely indifferent when she died. And then three years later, February 25th, 1983, Williams was found dead at the Hotel Elise in New York at the age of 71. An autopsy reported that he had choked to death by inhaling the plastic cap of a bottle used for nasal spray or eye drops. Oh. Now, I can't tell you how many times I've accidentally left the lid on my nasal spray when I'm trying to take it, but because of the years of drug use... And especially like the relaxant types of drugs he was using, his gag reflex didn't work anymore. So he wasn't able to like cough up the cough thing. it up. It was determined that he was likely using it not just to drop in to take nasal spray, but to use barbiturates. I don't know how one uses this for your barbiturates, like uses the lid portion. And since I'm not your dare officer, I'm not gonna look it up and tell you. It's like, well, when you're shooting heroin, here are the steps you need to take. Yeah, I'm not going to do that for you. I'm not paid that much. His will stated, I, Thomas Lanier, Tennessee Williams, being in sound mind upon this subject and having declared this wish repeatedly to my close friends, do hereby state my desire to be buried at sea. Okay, you become a beloved American playwright, right? And we'll talk about burying you at sea. More specifically, I wish to be buried at sea as close as... Uh, at as close a possible point as the American poet Hart Crane died by choice in the sea. This would be as ascertainable. Uh, there's a couple of six in here, SIC SICs. Sick. Uh, this geographic point by the various books biographical upon his life and death. I wish to be sewn up in a canvas sack and dropped overboard, as stated above, as close as possible to where Hart Crane was given by himself to the great mother of life, which is the sea, the Caribbean, specifically, if that fits the geography of his death. Otherwise, wherever fits it. Did he just not even bother to look up where in the ocean this guy died? It's like, I think it's the Caribbean. Look, do the research for me. This is my will. I'm dead. I can do what I want. His brother, Dakin, had him buried at Calvary Cemetery in St. Louis near his mother. Fuck you, Dakin. Oh, that is a dick move. Okay, 
So, you know how we were talking about how we need to do something in all 50 states? Yeah. I think our St. Louis trip needs to involve us digging up Tennessee Williams. <laughs> taking him to the sea. And taking him to the Caribbean. Or wherever on earth that was, and burying him according to his wishes. Oh, I was talking to somebody in one of my true crime groups about how I've told you repeatedly that I want to be thrown into the ocean and eaten by sharks, and you say it's illegal, and then I say nothing's illegal over international waters. And then I realize nothing's illegal on a cruise ship. We've, oh, we had this discussion. We're just gonna weekend at Bernie's me onto the cruise ship. Onto a cruise ship. Wait, first of all, no. You're going in my luggage. I am not paying for your ticket. Um, they search. Do you really want to have to carry luggage with me in it? I mean, you will ruin your luggage. We are old. I'll have someone carry my luggage for me. I'll get a cabin boy. How will you get from like the airport to the to the cruise? Cabin boy. Also, how do you know that I'm old? Cabin boy. This could be like next week. Cabin boy. And I fully expect you to risk coronavirus to get me buried at sea. I mean, I could just, like, we have a creek. Eventually you'll make it. Okay, legit though, with all the people dying of coronavirus, do you think that they really care about sea burials right now? No, probably not. I'm not making light of the fact people are dying of coronavirus because I am legitimately terrified. But at the same time, I feel like you could get me buried at sea right now. I feel like you could just be like, you know what? She want to be buried at sea. We don't have enough space in the morgues right now. Let me just take her to the ocean. Your mother would kill me. She can't go. <laughs> She can go on the trip with you. It's like, we're going on a cruise, Val. It's like, Sarah doesn't look good. Just take it. Yeah. No, no, no. This time you've gotten permission because it's, because there aren't enough space anyway. Okay. So just throw me in the ocean. Let the sharks eat me. What if sharks can get coronavirus? I don't want to give coronavirus to the sharks. So sounds like this is a no go then. Yeah. Well, in addition to leaving things to his sister, not fucking Dakin, because he knew he wouldn't bury him at sea. And Robert Carroll in his will, he left his literary rights to the University of the South in Swanee, Tennessee, in honor of his alumnus grandfather, the one who had supported his writing. The money supports their creative writing program. Rose remained alive until 1996. Wow. When she died and bequeathed $7 million from her part of the estate to the same school. Now, that's why I'm not sure if she remained institutionalized the rest of her life, because if she did the bequeathing, she may no longer have been institutionalized, or maybe her brother Dakin took over or somebody. But I was not able to ever confirm whether or not she stayed institutionalized I mean, the rest of her lots life. Of, we had lots of mental health reforms between her lobotomy and 1997, so she could have very well been Yeah, but in lobotomies a also can, like, leave you a child. Yeah. Mm-hmm. When Williams died, he'd been working on a play called In Masks Outrageous and Austere. This play is beyond bizarre, described as nightmarish, extremely funny, and bizarre as hell, and is about the world's richest woman, Babe Foxworth, being kidnapped alongside her young gay husband and even younger male secretary, living now in their kidnapping situation in a, a next door to an invisible house with neighbors who are an opera singer called Matron, her mentally challenged son, I believe his name was Playboy, who can only say coo and is constantly masturbating, and her husband Mac, who communicates exclusively through grunts. HBO is making this new movie <laughs> as we speak. This is going to be a limited series on HBO within the next five years. There have been several versions and different beliefs about how much revision was done after his death. We do know that somebody was brought on six months before his death to help him finish it. But everybody agrees that this play was his way of working out his own life. This bizarre thing is him working out the trauma and the experiences that he personally had had. Whoa. And that's why I can't separate art from artist. 
in a nutshell. Oh. Because you look at a piece of art and you might think, this has nothing to do with them. This is just a bizarre thing about an invisible house and a chronic masturbator. When in fact, this could be themselves. That could be exactly what they see when they think of themselves. Which is why I can't separate art from artist. I've known oh. enough artists to know. Yeah. He don't though he donated the rights to of his uh, to his works to the University of the South. His actual archive of his belongings at the University of Texas at Austin. If you ever want to see his stuff firsthand, there's also something similar in Key West, Florida, at the Tennessee Williams Theater. He lived in Florida for a while. He lived a lot of places. There are yearly festivals in his honor across the country. In 2014, he was one of the inaugural heroes on the Rainbow Honor Walk, a walk of fame in San Francisco that honors LGBTQ plus people who have quote made significant contributions in their fields. Like many artists, much of his work was not appreciated until after his death, particularly outside the U.S. (laughs) So if you're feeling unappreciated right now, like we are with our podcast, just know that once I am buried at sea... You know, that's how our podcast is going to get big. I'll be caught trying to bury you at sea, (laughs) and someone's going to say, wait, these two had a podcast where they talked about exactly this, then we'll be famous. Now... He may seem like a strange choice for Pride Month, because I feel like somebody, like Austin picked somebody who's a little bit more like Pride, Pride, Pride. Mm -hmm. Well, I picked somebody where being gay was a major part of his life, but was not his life. He, and I feel like we, that's a common mistake that we make in education. When we look at, say, Martin Luther King, we focus on the advocacy. We don't focus on the man. We don't see, like, he would go home from these speeches at the end of the night. What did he do? Did he go home and drink a bottle of whiskey? Did he go home and have a nice, polite dinner and go to sleep? Did he sit at home and cry? Like, we don't know what this man did. So it makes him very hard to relate to. We also don't talk about the people who just were one thing and another at the same time. So when we talk about Tennessee Williams, we leave out the fact that he was gay. So gay kids don't see, oh, I could be a playwright too, just and write this bizarre shit, and I, and people could be reading my stuff in high schools fifty years from now. They don't see that. And when we do talk about people uh, from the LGBT community, on the off chance that we do in schools or even like women, we talk about, well, look at this amazing work they did for their kind. And if we're only focusing on that, I have had so many conversations with young people, especially who feel like they're not enough. I am not enough of a girl to speak out for girls. I am not enough of a gay person to speak out for gay people. I am not enough of whatever to speak out for people who are like me. Or I don't want this to be my primary identity. I want to go be a banker who also happens to be this. But I feel like history books telling me I can't. If I'm not this, then I'm not good enough for my own community. So that's why I wanted to talk about Tennessee Williams. Tennessee Williams was this highly flawed, fucked up dude who didn't always make good choices he was also a person who all who didn't actively try to hurt anybody who spent millions over his lifetime caring for a disabled sister who brought this bizarre flavor to theater that had never been there before all the while being an openly gay man you can be more than one thing And it's important that we mention that and all the things you can be at the same time in schools. And that's Tennessee Williams. I want to read that play. Baby doll? No, the uh, masks. The the masks. Uh, Yeah. That that sounds insane. I bet the library has it. I mean. Well, maybe they don't. It's too controversial for Kansas. Well, we can get it through. No, you can't. Oh, yeah, we can't. Oh, well. That seems like a university library kind of book. 
Yep. And currently, most university libraries aren't lending stuff out, so... Yay. Are you ready for some questions? I am ready for some questions. Will this be on the test? Tennessee Williams' real name was Thomas Lanier Williams III. Yes. Tennessee Williams was gay. I would say now, yes. I'd hope so. It's like, it's one of those things that's challenging because normally anything relating to relationships in schools is put in the context of marriage and children. Mm -hmm. So if he had been married to any one of these men, it'd be a lot easier to put it on the test. But it was not allowed. (laughs) Yeah, he literally could not marry them even if he had wanted to. And I mean, you don't have to be married for for your relationship to be valid in the first place. So... Whatever. His father was alcoholic, abusive, and absent, while his mother was overbearing in a way very similar to Amanda Wingfield in Glass Menagerie. You know, I think that gives a lot of context to Glass Menagerie, so I feel like that would be on the test. Mm-hmm. His sister had schizophrenia and a bat botched lobotomy, and so he ended up dedicating much of his life to her. Probably not, because mm-hmm. we still don't talk about mental illness. And at the end of the day, all Tennessee Williams was wanted was for someone to love him. Oh, I don't know if that'll be on the test or not, but it should be. <laughs> All right, so that is Tennessee Williams. That was wild. Yep, we got off on a lot of tangents. You can't blame the time entirely on me. Oh no, what's it at? 55. Oh, that's not bad. That's that's about normal. That's about 10 minutes longer than normal. Yeah, it's fine. Huh. So. White Claw. White Claw. Rah. It is so hot in here. So, again, we're, because it's Pride Month, and we were talking about how we learned none of this in school. Mm-hmm. I did not. Okay, I'm in embarrassed by this. I didn't know there was a gay civil rights movement. I didn't either. And no, I didn't know until the movie Milk came out. I didn't know. Uh, I knew there was a gay civil rights movement in, like around, actually, yeah, Milk. And I didn't know what Stonewall was until I'm going to say five years ago. Like we literally have a restaurant near us called the Stonewall Inn. Yeah. Or I don't think it's called that anymore, but no, it's supposed to be haunted. It bought, it got bought by some hipsters. It got bought by somebody who invited Trump to come eat there. Ugh, he's an, he's an asshole. Yeah, and he's like, it's not a political statement. It's yes, like, it is. Fuck you, it is. Yeah, no, I didn't know any of this. And I'm somebody who went to like, okay, this is what it was called back then, uh, queers and allies meetings in college. And like, as a theater person, this is stuff that I feel like I should have known. And I didn't know until Milk came out that there had even been a gay civil rights movement. Yeah, we absolutely lost over. And again, we were even talking about figures like Tennessee Williams or other, we didn't learn any of this. And of course, you know, I learned, we talked about, we learned all about other parts of the civil rights movement. We didn't learn about Malcolm X, but that's a completely different story. Well, I remember early on too, I said, we never learned about what Hispanic and Latino people were doing yeah. during any of this. And it turns out it depended on where you were, if you were considered black or if you were considered black or white. Yeah. yeah. So we didn't learn a lot, but I didn't learn about Stonewall until a few years ago. And it's just, when we were in school, this just wasn't something that was talked about. Oh, no. It sounds like it's changed since then. But, like, this, for us, like, I learned a lot of what I'm talking about, like, as I was researching this. Because mm-hmm. I am going to talk about one of the major figures from the, Stone, from the Stonewall riots in New York. I'm going to talk about Marsha P. Johnson, the black, gay, gender non-conforming gay rights icon. Okay. So this is very intersectional. J.K. Rowling. J.K. Like, I'm. We we record from a Harry Potter themed room, and I want to throw some of this stuff right now. You know, we. But I know it'll only hurt me. Born Malcolm Michaels Jr. in 1945, she described herself as a nobody from Nowheresville. She was actually from New Jersey. So nobody from Nowheresville. Nobody from actually, Nowheresville. you know what? No, New Jersey. I mean, I haven't checked on you in a few days, but you've been doing okay. You know, everything's legal in New Jersey. <laughs> so yeah. 
in interviews, uh, she described her mother as saying that homosexuality was like being lower than a dog. And her family was very much against it. She said that being gay was like some sort of dream that she didn't think was possible. So, but after waiting on tables in Greenwich Village and meeting gay people in the city, after she'd moved out of New Jersey and moved to New York in the 60s, she felt it was possible to be gay and come out. So she decided on the name for her drag persona, uh, Marsha P. Johnson. The P, when she asked what the P stood for, she would say, pay no mind. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Yeah. So, and also, and no, no, stuff. Um, Marsha P. Johnson identified herself as a drag queen, as gay, and as a transvestite. She was, her lifetime was before the, uh, you know, gender nonconforming were really words. Always take somebody's lead. If they yeah. say, I want to be called this, it doesn't mean you have to apply it universally. Mm-hmm. Just apply it to them. Yeah, so those were the words that she used to describe herself. Susan Stryker, a human sexuality and gender professor at the University of Arizona, said Johnson could probably be best defined now as gender nonconforming. Okay. Um, She was a colorful and bright dresser. She wore red plastic heels, bright colorful wigs, um, because she would sleep under the flower tables because she was homeless. Okay. She would often have fresh flowers in a crown in her in her wig, and she was just very bright, colorful dresser. Usually not expensive or flashy clothes, because again, homeless mm-hmm. for a large portion of time. So now we get to Stonewall. She was actually one of the first drag queens to actually go to the Stonewall Inn after after they started allowing drag queens and women inside, because it had previously been a men's only gay club. <laughs> also, did you know that it was run by the mob? No. Yes, it was run by the it was run by the mob partially because they could they were operating without a liquor license because there were years where it would you could not have a liquor license and be a gay bar mm-hmm. that would finally change but still many of them didn't get them they didn't have a fire exit so nothing was really up to code it was very much kind of a speakeasy type situation uh-huh. and also uh, they would like to blackmail their wealthier customers. I mean, who doesn't? That's what I do. That's how I get my money. So yeah, Stonewall Inn run by the mob. Didn't know that. But on June 28th, 1969, Stonewall was raided by the police. 13 people were arrested, including people violated for for the gender, uh, violating the gender appropriate clothing statute. Something that still exists in many public schools today. Yes. The patrons, really fed up with their treatment at this point, instead of just dispersing, actually waited outside the bar. And when a officer hit a lesbian over the head to force her into the van. Nope. Um, the onlookers started throwing objects, including bricks, at the police. Yeah. Within minutes, this turned into a full-blown riot with hundreds of participants. And there's varying reports about who tried to burn down the Stonewall Inn. Some say it was the rioters. Some say it was the police. Some say it was the mob. But it did. It was partially burned. There were people, like, sheltering inside of it who were putting out the fires. And the police did finally get the fires out and, like, got them out of there. Including a reporter from the Village Voice. Marsha is credited with a lot of things. Like, for instance, starting the riot. <laughs> the um, the folklore is that she threw a shot glass at the mirror behind the bar and shouted, I got my civil rights, and really kind of sparked everything. Also, other people say that she was also one of the people who threw a brick at a cop. She denies it. She claims that she didn't even arrive there until 2 a.m. after the riots had started. <laughs> so she's credited with these things, and she doesn't want the credit whether or not she was there. Yes, but other people, there's also mixed reports about who actually did this stuff. 
partly because the gay and lesbian activists did not want her really involved because, you know, they they thought she would be bad for the message. Yeah, that happens a lot. Like, you'd be amazed at how different organizations pick and choose the people they want representing them. Yeah. Of course, uh, she, however, there are many reports that she did climb a light pole and drop a bag with a brick on it into a cop car, shattering its windshield. Just a normal Tuesday night. So, you know, she did, she did mix it up, but she denies that she was the person who threw the shot glass into the mirror. And some people even doubt that it actually happened. And a big part of the reason why they, not only because she was a, she was transgendered, they also didn't want her involved because she had a history of mental illness. Uh Uh-huh. That'll do it. Yeah. Uh, so, first of all, a, mentor, a history of mental illness and homelessness. She had engaged in survival sex and was a sex worker oh. who claimed to have been arrested over a hundred times. It's like my ugh was not at her needing to do survival sex. It was at people being mad at her for it. Yeah. You do what you gotta do. Yes. Again, she was homeless for about a, over a decade, actually. Uh... She had been institutionalized at Bellevue on several occasions, once for running down the street naked. Mm-hmm. She'd also been banned from a long list of gay bars for volatile behavior and had been known to win in her uh, male persona of Malcolm to be violent and try and search for fights when she was. Her peers described her as having a schizophrenic personality. As far as I can tell, there was never an actual diagnosis. Yeah, it sounds like they're using the like colloquial version of schizophrenia uh-huh. as opposed to the scientific version of schizophrenia. Yes. So again, I didn't find any of any any records of diagnosis diagnoses. So, but still, she emerged from the Stonewall riots as one of the leaders in the rights movement. Uh, she was involved with the first Pride Parade, and that marked the one-year anniversary of the riots. She also joined the Gay Liberation Front and th- staged a sit-in at NYU after the university canceled a dance sponsored by gay organizations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, things that still happen. Things that still happen. Uh, she also founded an organization called STAR, the Street Transvestite Action Revolutionaries, with her close friend Sylvia Rivera, which offered housing to homeless transgendered youth this was the first organization of its kind that actually reached out to these kids and yeah, there's still an epidemic of homelessness among lgbtq plus youth yes whose parents turn them out yeah it's still sadly completely necessary to have those and she acted as the drag mother who was mm-hmm. basically the maternal figure for all of these kids and would like you know be the found family of sorts for them yep it was entirely funded by her and Rivera's uh, sex work. Wow. Yeah. Uh, in 1973, Johnson and Rivera were banned from the Pride Parade. The organizers weren't going to allow drag queens at the marches, saying that they were giving the movement a bad name. Ugh. This was long before Drag Race. So they just marched in front of the parade. <laughs> just defiantly, like right before the parade. Just in front of it. Just walking down the street. You they were walking down, the walking, street. walking down the street. Yeah. So uh, famously, she was also featured in an Andy Warhol photo project. Mm-hmm. So in 1980, her friend Aunt, uh, Randy Randy Wicker actually took her in because she had been living on the streets, and he was worried because she was it was getting cold, and she thought she could die. So um, she remained his roommate for the rest of her life. She did contact contract HIV during the 80s, mm-hmm. which. Fuck you, Ronald Reagan. 
this that disease should have been nipped in the bud so much faster if it wasn't for homophobia and racism. Yeah. And it wasn't even so much that it like poverty played such a huge role in it. And yeah. the cycle of poverty. Oh, I'll stop. I'll stop. Yeah. I was actually thinking about doing that, but I decided, no, I'm going to do something slightly more fun. History Nothing is. Nothing says fun like someone who can drax AIDS. <sighs> but she did continue her work as a street organizer throughout the 80s. Mm-hmm. Oh, actually, in 1992, at a Stonewall Memorial, she said, where they were moving from statues from one park to another, she said, How many people have died for these two little statues to be put in a park to recognize gay people? How many years does it take for people to see that we're all brothers and sisters and human beings in this human race? I mean, how many years does it take for people to see they, we are all in this race together? And on July 6th, 1992, Marsha's body was found in the Hudson River shortly after the Pride Parade. Oh. The police ruled it a suicide. No! But she had a large bruise on the back of her head. Uh, she had made plans with Rivera earlier and, like, was not acting this suicidal. Is not someone, like, even with her mental health history, nothing in her past indicates suicidal ideation. Yeah. Several witnesses had seen her being harassed by a man um, using gay slurs against her. Wait, what year was this? 1992. And what year did it come out? I don't know. There was there was a case that inspired it, but I don't th- I don't think it was her. Yeah, I don't think it was her. And a man at a bar was heard bragging about killing a drag queen named Marsha. Hmm. Yes. Her friends believe that the NYPD simply did not want to investigate the death of a gay person of color. Hmm. Yeah. In 2012, activist Mariah Lopez got the NYPD to reopen the case, and the cause of death has since been changed from suicide to undetermined, but there is, they are not currently investigating any leads. No. Yep. In 2007, a documentary was released about this called The Death and Life of Martha P. Johnson. And uh, RuPaul has called her an inspiration and said that she has paved the way for all of them. So, meaning drag queens. So, mm-hmm. RuPaul views, views her as an icon, which is pretty damn good. And finally, this year, in February, Governor Andrew Cuomo re- has renamed the East River Park in Johnson's honor. So, this is the first ga- state park in New York to be named after... A transgendered person. So. Very cool. Yep. That is. Yeah. Like this is the stuff that we need to learn in school. We like because this was happening at roughly the same time as the black civil rights movement. Yep. Roughly. And, and uh, this also happened in 1992 where we learned about Rodney King. I didn't. You didn't? Not once. Wow. I learned about Rodney King. No, I've actually been thinking about like Rodney King and how much I don't know about it because it's been coming up a lot recently because of, you know, current events. Yeah. So. Yeah, no, I never learned about that. Never learned about if there was a whiff of non-heteronormativity, it was not taught to me. Yeah. Like, I went to very conservative schools for much of my upbringing. And then we and I went to the same high school where it just wasn't part of the curriculum. No. Oh, but that brings me some good news. So we're always asking, will this be on the test? Well, I've got good news. Uh Uh-huh. This actually is on the test now. What test? Um, it is on the requi- it is on the required curriculum in California, Oregon, Washington, and another state in the East I forgot the name of. So a few states have it on the test. A few states will actually have this on the test, where they're requiring uh, LGBTQ plus history to be taught in schools. 
and not just in high school. This is also included in K through eight education. Yeah, and we need to stop making all of these this very special lesson on just have it be part of your goddamn curriculum. Yeah. It's like, okay, we're talking about, you know, the founding fathers. Here's a little insert about Martha Washington. No, if they did something important, just include it in the overall story. Yeah. And yeah, like, because otherwise it's, it continues the othering of different groups of people to have it be their own special section of your lesson. Mm-hmm. <sighs> questions for me? I do have questions for you. So. You forgot to write them down. I totally you? forgot to write them down. <laughs> Will Martha P. Johnson be on the test? In some states. Yep. Will the fact that she had a history of mental illness be on the test? I think I think it would have to be. Yep. Will the fact that she might have been murdered, but the NYPD did not investigate it be on the test? Parts of that question will be on the test. And will the fact that she might not have actually started these riots be on the test? No, because we like to heroify. Yeah, so she that was the weird thing. It's like, I heard, oh yeah, she, she started the riot. But she actually claimed, I wasn't even there. I, was, I had heard about it, and I was going to get a friend who was sleeping on a park bench to come join me. I believe it all started. Her. Yeah. I believe, like, why would she lie about that? I mean, I guess she could have been under some pressure, mm-hmm. but they didn't want her involved. So having her I be know. more involved doesn't make sense. I know. This was, this was a wild one. So I this was a fun one to research for me because I didn't know any of this going into it. And I had, like, outlines and I was, like, had so many sources open. And I'm a bad student and I never cited any of them. We're going to get so sued. What is something you learned this week? I learned that Tennessee Williams' sister was lobotomized. Mm-hmm. It's like the proc. It's so weird because I know like JFK had a sister who was lobotomized, and it's like it was just such a weirdly common thing that it keeps like from that time period. It just keeps popping up. Yeah, yeah, lobotomies were weird, and like there were occasional cases where it actually seemed to help. But the question too becomes: Did it help, or did it just make them more compliant? I think it ge- the general consensus it just made them more compliant mm-hmm. most of the time like there are a few cases you know where messing with the insides seems to help people but using an ice pick and guessing probably not the best way to do it nope Ugh. what what did you learn i knew nothing about martha p johnson before this yeah but oh. i do like the fact that she claims she didn't start the thing she's given all the credit for starting yeah i love that oh and of course my favorite question which i should have asked because i didn't write down my questions will will what did the p stand for be on the test yeah i think it would yeah it's like you should pay it no mind pay no mind mm-hmm. i like it salt that's like that is solid humor right there mm-hmm. and she was she was not like one of the very she was not a serious drag performer she was definitely more of a campy kind of jokey one mm-hmm. so i feel like the definite humor in, um, was a, lo- a big element of, a lot of what she did. Mm-hmm. Well, everybody, that we're wrapping it up for today. Happy Pride. I know it could not be a worse time in the world right now. And you probably don't feel like celebrating. But if you do, that's fine. Yeah. That is fine. Because there, there's nothing wrong with who you are. And I know you know that. And I just know it sometimes doesn't feel like the rest of the world knows that. And even if you know that, it's still sometimes nice to have someone say that it's yeah, like who you are is okay. Who you are is okay. And we are on your side. And we are the ones who are like, you want me to punch somebody in the face? I will not because I'm on the air. And those are threatening words. Wink. (laughs) Yeah. We we like people. We will help people. And just. No, we don't like people. No, actually true. We we hate. We hate most people, but we like the people we like. So, (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah, we... Like, There's not a good way to say this. We're we're generally assholes, but we're nice assholes. Yes, we are assholes who will fight for the right of anybody else to be an asshole in an equal way that we can. Yeah. Honestly, the people we like the least are the people who are most like us, I think. Yeah. <laughs> so, but yeah, you're stuck with us. You're stuck with us on your side. Sorry about it. Yeah, it could be worse, though. Yeah, we could be JK Rowling. Ugh, she's the... Dude, just come on. I'm so mad. I have been, like, stomping around. And yeah, she has said shit like this before. But the other times never felt like an official declaration. Yeah, but the other times it's been, like, a retweet. It's like, does she know that this doesn't mean what she thinks it means? This time it's been 100%, like... She actually used the Trump line of, I talked to scientists. I'm like, really? Were they terrific? Was their knowledge huge? I talked huge? to the best scientists. Mm-hmm. All the best scientists, yeah. Just, and I am, like, equally mad with what she said. And this time that she decided was the time to say it. Yeah, it's like, hmm, hmm. We have riots going on all around the world. We have a pandemic that's killing people off. Especially people in poverty, which disproportionately affects people of color and people from the LGBTQ community. And it's Pride Month. What can I do right now? I know. Tell this generation of people who use my books as a survival tool that they don't matter. Fuck you, JK. Oh, I'm sure she gives awkward hugs just like Voldemort. Well, she does have lots of trans people she loves. And don't worry, um, she got a phone call from a lesbian telling her that she did a good job, so... Okay, A, lesbian and trans, not the same thing. Mm -hmm. And B, you don't, that's just not what the science says. (sighs) At the end of the day, your beliefs don't override science. It just doesn't. Nope. Like, and this is what pisses me off, is I have spent countless hours and so much of my own money because I've taught Harry Potter classes, making sure I could get the minutia of her fictional world correct and do it justice. She can't take five fucking minutes to Google the difference between gender and sex to validate somebody's real existence. And that's how I feel about that. Yep. Okay. So where can they find us on social media? We are on Twitter at OnTheTestPod. We are on Instagram at OnTheTestPod. Twitter is our most active place. I forget we have Instagram sometimes. Well, I mean, we're an audio podcast. We don't have a lot of opportunity for photos. No. Unless you want to see our cats. Our Facebook is facebook.com slash on the test pod. You can find us at on the test There is a contact form on there if you want to email us. You can also reach out to us on any of our social medias. Yeah, we would love to hear from you, like, you know, suggestions, comments, um, like, you know, telling us how great we are because we do need constant validation. We do. And also, we'd love some reviews. Uh, we are on the iTunes and everything else. If you're listening to us, you know where we are. Yeah. Unless this is like. Aliens getting this, like, through radio waves or something? Or if you're hearing us psychically, I'm sorry. Do you have to hear us all the time? Oh, God. Or, like, maybe, like, you're on a road trip with some friends, and they said, I'm gonna make you listen to this podcast. And you're like, what is this? A cast of pods? I've never heard of such a thing. Why, I must hear more of these. Well, give us a great review first. And then, like, we want to hear from you specifically, because how have you not heard of podcasts? Like, I want to study you. Okay, legit, I didn't start listening to podcasts until about a year and a half ago. See, I've been listening to them for a while because... Oh, you told me, like, you need to listen to your podcast. I'm like, I don't listen to podcasts. I don't listen to podcasts. And then I was listening to NPR, and they were like, if you want to hear more, listen to our podcast. Uh, It was Spooked. And I was like, I want to hear more. And you told me I've got to listen to Spooked. I'm like, well, whatever. And then I caught it on NPR. I'm like, 
And that was how oh, I got into oh, it. Oh, so you'll listen to NPR, but you won't listen to me. I see how I rate in all of this. Well, they are the authority on most things. They are. Have you listened to them with their nice, soothing voices? They have the most um, Prairie's home companions. Yep. I actually met one of their journalists when I was in high school, and she was the only one who was nice to me at a party. Yep. Uh, we also went to high school with someone who was briefly one of the journalists. We did? Yeah, Aaron Couch. Oh, I didn't know he worked for NPR. Yeah, he worked for NPR for a while. Yeah, because he's just cooler than us. He's done everything. Yeah. It's like, there's very few people I am, like, openly jealous of. <laughs> he is two of them. Well, I guess that's wrapping up. Yep. Um, stay safe out there, guys. Keep wearing your masks. The second the second wave has started. There will be a larger part of the second wave or a third wave, whatever you want to call it, in about five days, I would guess, because of yeah. when the protests started. Wear a mask, wash your hands, listen to our hand-washing episode if you don't remember how. Tell a friend to listen to our hand-washing episode if they're an idiot. And on that note, class class dismissed. dismissed.